We'll be looking at John chapter 5. We're returning to our study through the Gospel of John. I want to preach to you a difficult message, one that I have struggled with this week because no minister really uh, truly enjoys talking about the subject of, of hell and um, eternity and judgment and those kinds of things, but it is in the book, and so therefore we must. If you are a fan of heavy metal rock and roll music, you will recognize the name Alice Cooper. During his heydays of the 1970s and 80s, Alice Cooper was known for his grotesque and theatrical stage performances dubbed Shock Rock. His lyrics were lewd. His performances were crude. And if you were to judge him just based on what you saw on stage, you would probably conclude that Alice Cooper was the least likeliest person to ever become a Christian. But how many of you know two important words? But God. In 1983, Alice Cooper's career and life had come to an abrupt halt. The rocker was deep into cocaine and alcohol addiction. His marriage was falling apart. And his wife threatened to leave him if he didn't clean up his act. Talk about an ultimatum. Cooper tried everything to change, but he was powerless. And some of us have been there before. We've tried so hard to change. and In our flesh, we can't do it, but Jesus working in and through us can. Cooper's wife went to church. She heard the gospel. She responded. And her transformation was so amazing that Alice Cooper could no longer ignore Jesus Christ. She began asking him to come to church, and he always came up with an excuse. Until one day, he had no excuse, and he finally did. He gave in, and he came to church. Just imagine that preacher's shock. <laughs> Alice Cooper, the shock rocker on the front row of the pew. That particular day, the pastor preached a sermon on the reality of hell. Cooper fell under deep conviction. He realized that if his life ended at that moment, he would split hell wide open. Then the unthinkable happened. The time of invitation was given, and Alice Cooper came forward in a tiny little church to give his life to Jesus Christ. In 2019, he did an interview with Pastor Greg Laurie, and Alice Cooper shared his testimony. He said, I came to Christ because of my utter fear of God. Listen to what he said. I totally understood that day that hell was not getting high with Jim Morrison and Leonard Skinner. Hell was not a party. It was going to be the worst place ever. Since that day, Jesus has done an amazing transformation in this man, he said he's been sober for 39 years. He quit singing songs that glorified sex and drugs. He faithfully attends Camelback Bible Church in Paradise Valley, Arizona. And he told Greg Laurie about his morning routine. He said, I'm up before the sun at 5 a.m. every day, straight out of bed. I make a cup of coffee. I grab my Bible and I spend the first hour of my day reading and praying. Does that sound like a changed man or what? Now, not only is that a powerful testimony, but I think it points to the necessity for preachers to still preach on hell. You know, that preacher probably would have been tempted that day when he saw somebody rich and famous sitting in his church to soften the blow and not preach on hell. 
And yet it was the reality, according to Alice Cooper, of eternal judgment that shocked him to his core. They say you preachers ought not to preach on hell. You'll scare people. Well, you know what? We ought to fear a living God who is holy and who is righteous, the Bible says. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, Hebrews says. Now, the doctrine of hell has pretty much disappeared from most pulpits and seminaries these days. In fact, I'm going to cite for you some stats from Dr. Robert Jeffress. He reported these findings in one of his books. But according to him, he says, quote, only 50% of seminary faculty, that is, seminary professors, believe that hell exists. And nearly, listen to this, 47% of all seminary students, that is, pastors-to-be, preachers-to-be, 47% believe that it is, quote-unquote, in poor taste to tell unbelievers that hell is their destination if they reject Christ. No wonder the doctrine of hell has seemingly disappeared from most of our churches. Listen to this. In 2014, Pew Research did a poll, and they found these staggering Results, 100% of millennials, that's my generation, those born from 1980 to the year 2000, ages 18 to 29, 100% said they believed there was no hell. As if popular opinion can change the word of God. Prominent author Mark Twain was once asked about his stance on heaven and hell. and Many of you know he had a tongue-in-cheek way of writing. He said this, I don't like to commit myself about heaven and hell. You see, I have friends in both places. Go to heaven for the climate, go to hell for the company. I wonder if his mind has changed now. Many of you know Aaron Rodgers. He's the Super Bowl winning quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. He recently ripped Christianity in an interview. He stated the popular attitude of many people in our world when it comes to to hell, he said this, quote, I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet to a fiery hell. Now you can see the problem with that statement. Obviously, he hasn't read John 3.16. Or many of the other verses in the Bible that speak of God's mercy, and that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and that it is God's will that all repent and come into a knowledge of the truth, and that God is not slow concerning His promises, but willing that all should repent and come to Jesus Christ. Now, despite what the world may feel or think about hell, it doesn't change the fact that the Bible teaches that it is real. We can't make hell go away by not believing in it any more than we can make the earth flat simply by denying the facts. In fact, Jesus preached on hell a lot and 70 times in His sermons more than any other preacher or prophet in the Bible. And so, friend, to deny the reality of hell is not only to deny the authority of the Bible, but it is to call Jesus a liar. Who else is a better authority on the subject of heaven and hell, judgment and eternity, than the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus said it, I believe it, that settles it. Despite what my feelings or my opinion might say about it. In John 5, we have one of Jesus' sermons about that subject, heaven, hell, and eternity and the Lord pulls back His veil and He reveals some incredible and sobering truth about the mystery of life and death. And I pray that you will pay attention this morning. Take the 
cotton balls out of your ears, as it were, as we think about the subject, judge Jesus. I want you to see number one this morning, the son's verdict in final judgment. The son's verdict in final judgment. We'll read in verses 22 and 23 just to get started, but look at what the Bible says here. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Now, if you were to ask the average person on the street today, who is Jesus, you would get many contradictory opinions. Some would say he's a prophet. Some might say he's a good moral teacher. He's an example of love and compassion. Others might say, I have even heard some skeptics say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. (laughs) And when they say something like that, they're revealing their ignorance about the Bible. A statement like that proves that they have never really read the words of Jesus because if we were to go back in this same context, in this same passage, Look at what verse 18 says. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. (laughs) Friend, there's only a few options when it comes to the identity of Jesus. He's either Lord, lunatic, or liar. And you look at the record of his life, lunatic and liar are thrown out. You're left with one conclusion, Lord. He's either a good man, a bad man, or the God-man. He's either deceiver or deluded or divine. So Jesus is speaking here after He claims the authority of God in the flesh. He speaks here about His final verdict in judgment. Now think about this, friend. The same Jesus who spoke about the love of God in John 3.16 now in chapter 5 is talking here about the judgment of God. We have to view God completely. We can't just pick and choose as if we were going down a buffet line. Oh, I'll take a little love, I'll take a little grace, I'll like a side plate of mercy, and maybe a little bit of holiness thrown in there. No, we don't get to pick and choose the attributes of God. We take Him as He reveals Himself. Yes, He's full of love, He's full of mercy, He's grace, but God is also holy, righteous, and just. And the Bible says we'll all be judged one day according to our works. Now, there are three credentials in this text here that reveal to us or explain why Jesus is qualified to render the final verdict on your life and my life. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Confucius, not any of the other world religion leaders, but Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. The first that I want you to see this morning about the Son's verdict in final judgment, His virtue establishes it. His virtue establishes it. If you drop down to verse 30, notice what Jesus says. Same passage. Verse 30, He says, I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, watch this, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of Him who sent me. In order to be a judge, you have to have two attributes. You have to have righteousness and you have to have knowledge of the facts. Jesus fits both of those. He possesses righteousness. He is able to judge justly. He has all the facts on your life and my life. He has perfect knowledge that's called omniscience so that there will be no other second opinion, no disputing over the truth. 
In fact, if you keep reading, or if you go back in John chapter 2, the Bible says in John chapter 2, 24 and 25, that he knew all people and needed not to hear witness about them because he knew what was in man. Friend, listen to me today. Jesus knows you at your worst, but loves you the most. Jesus knows everything about your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, the things that you're ashamed of, the sin, the darkness, the evil, the addiction, whatever problem you're dealing with. Jesus knows about it, and guess what? He still loves you. But friend, if you reject the love and the mercy of this Christ, He'll not be your Savior, He'll be your judge. You see, Jesus is the perfect judge because not only is he sinless, but he is omniscient. He has all knowledge. Not like the crooked judges who are presiding over the kangaroo courts today. Listen, Jesus can't be bought. He can't be swayed. He can't be impeached. He has flawless knowledge of every thought, every detail, every word, every deed. He knows the secret chambers of your heart and mine. And when we stand before Him, your mama can't answer for you. Your preacher can't help you out. It's you and a holy God alone. He knows the motivations for what we do and why we do it. David Jeremiah, talking about the great white throne judgment, said this. He said, quote, The great white throne judgment will not be like any courtroom experience Anyone has ever had. There will be a judge but no jury, a prosecutor but no defender, a sentence but no appeal. Jesus will conduct the trial and no one is better qualified. He did all he could to save men and since man rejected Christ as Savior, they must face him as judge. His virtue establishes it. But then secondly, his victory ensures it. Why will Jesus be rendering the final verdict in life? Well, not only His virtue, but His victory. When Paul went to Mars Hill there in the city of Athens and he climbed up the top of that hill and he preached to the intellectuals, the philosophers, and the elite of his day, he pointed to Jesus' resurrection as what qualified him to be the judge of humanity. Listen to what Paul preached, Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. He said this, The times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. That means turn from your sin. Ask God to forgive you. Turn from sin and turn to Jesus Christ. Do a 180 in your life. And then He says, verse 31, watch this. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. You see, friend, the resurrection of Christ showed God the Father's ultimate approval of the Son's sinless life and sacrificial death. I said it like this before. The resurrection is the Father's amen to the Son's. It is finished. And the resurrection not only proved Jesus' deity, that He was who He claimed to be, the Son of God in a human body, but it also vindicated Him as the ultimate authority over life and death. And by conquering death, which is our greatest enemy, Jesus defeated Satan and the grave and has thus secured the right to be judge of all. And even Muhammad, Buddha, 
And all the other religious leaders one day will have to bow the knee before Him and say, Jesus, You are King of kings. Jesus, You are Lord of lords. His victory ensures it. You know, years ago, some of you remember the radio personality Paul Harvey. He always would tell you the rest of the story. Paul Harvey once told a story about a petty criminal named Gary Tyndale. Listen to this. The man was charged with robbery, and while standing in a California courtroom of Judge Armando Rodriguez, Tyndale asked for permission to go to the bathroom. He was escorted upstairs to the bathroom, and the door was guarded by a bailiff while he was inside. But Tyndale... Determined to escape, climbed up the plumbing, opened a panel in the drop ceiling, and started slithering through the crawl space in order to escape to freedom. But here's what happened. He only got about 30 or 40 feet when the ceiling panels broke under him and he dropped right down into the judge's courtroom again. (laughs) And likewise, friend, I tell you that story to say this, there's a payday someday... And none of us will be able to escape that day of destiny with the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll either be your Savior or He will be your judge. You decide. So His victory ensures it. His virtue establishes it. And then I also want you to see this today. His vindication expects it. Why will we refer to Him as Judge Jesus? Because He will be vindicated by His Father. I love movies. Many of you know that, and you have also deduced that I'm a nerd, unapologetically. And in in a lot of my favorite movies and stories, I love the ones where good triumphs over evil. Those are the best ones. In Star Wars, Luke Skywalker redeems his father from the dark side, and the Empire is defeated. In Lord of the Rings, Frodo takes the one ring, and he accomplishes mission along with Sam, and they get the ring to Mount Doom, and they save Middle-earth. And then, if you like comic books and the Avengers, they find out a way to reverse the snap of Thanos and everybody that was lost is brought back into existence. That's good triumphing over evil. The point is that we all have an innate desire for good to win and for evil to be punished. We all are hardwired that way. It's in our DNA because we are made, the Bible says, in the image of God. And God happens to be a God of justice and righteousness. And for God to be God, evil must be ultimately dealt with. And God is going to vindicate His precious Son Jesus as the hero of the great story that He's been telling ever since the dawn of time. History is His story. It's God's great divine drama of redemption. Jesus Christ is the superstar. And as we sang this morning, you ain't seen the last of Him. Paul paints an awesome picture of Judge Jesus when he arrives back to planet earth. 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 7 and 9. Read these with me on the screen. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. So much for Jesus, meek and mild, right? 
You know, one common objection that I often hear from people on the subject of hell is they say, you know, hell is so unfair. From our finite fallen perspective, we look at life and we say, you know, the crime of hell doesn't fit the punishment. You're telling me that God is loving and yet He's going to punish people for all of eternity for their petty sins like lying and thievery and idolatry and so on? John Phillips gives a good answer to that in one of his books. He offers this analogy, which I like, and I'm going to show it to you this morning. Suppose a hot-tempered soldier were to punch a fellow soldier in the barracks. What would the punishment be? The punishment would be a few days of latrine duty, right? What if that soldier, though, were to assault a ranked officer? Well, the punishment would be more severe. There would be court-martial. There would be... Jail time, there would be dishonorable discharge. Then he offers this. He says, what if the President of the United States were visiting that day and the soldier were to smite the President in the face? He said he would be executed on the spot by the Secret Service. And then he added this. He said in each case the offense would be the same, but as the dignity and rank of the person assaulted increases so the seriousness of the offense increases proportionally. The higher up in rank you go, the worse the punishment for the offense will be. And friend, the reason why we don't understand the seriousness of sin is because we don't fear the holiness of God. The greatest evil of all time is perpetrated against the Son of God, the sinless, perfect, spotless Son of God, crucified, condemned to death, treated as the worst criminal of all time by the hands of men. And when you reject that, it's like slapping God in the face. And that is why hell is a fitting judgment for people who reject Christ. It's impossible to think, friend, that the last and final picture that the world will have of our Lord is one of His humiliation, His defeat, and His suffering. Most of the world only knew Jesus as He hung on the cross, bleeding out. The only time that Jesus appeared in resurrection glory was to His followers. Jesus never appeared in His resurrection glory to Herod or Pilate or the Roman emperor. The only exception to that is Paul, he did appear to Paul on the road to Damascus, but most of the world does not know Jesus in his glory, in his power, and in his authority. And that is why Judge Jesus must come back and judge the world. Because the Father has promised to the Son that he will receive all authority, all honor, all glory, and he must be vindicated in the arena where he was despised, rejected, and seemingly defeated. So his vindication expects it. Well, that's the final verdict in judgment. But then I also want you to see number two this morning. Not only the son's verdict, but the son's voice in future resurrection. The son's voice in future resurrection. Now, in the Bible, we read about two births, two deaths, and two resurrections. Let me go through those so that you understand all of them. First off, there's two births. There's the physical birth, where you're brought into this world. And then there's the spiritual birth. And Jesus says, 
in John 3, 3 that if we desire to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must be born again or born from above. We have to have a spiritual birthday where we repent, trust in Christ, and turn to Him as our Lord and Savior. So there's two births. There's also, listen to this, two deaths. There's what the Bible calls the first death and the second death. Now follow me. Death in the Bible is not the cessation of life. Death in the Bible is separation. See, the real you, when you breathe your last here on earth, you don't cease to exist. Your soul, the real you, goes to one of two places, heaven or hell, where you live for eternity. Just the body dies, but the soul endures. So the Bible says there's two deaths. There's first the, the physical death where the soul is separated from the body. But then the Bible also says that there's a second death where if you are in that category, the soul is separated from God. And when the Bible refers to that second death, it's talking about the place where sinners go who have rejected Christ and they are cast into hell to be eternally separated from God's love, God's presence, and God's mercy. You see, friend, what we need to understand this morning is that hell is the ultimate compliment that God pays to the free will of man. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, uh, you can either have it one of two ways. You can either do it God's way, or God will look to you and say, all right then, have it your way. If man doesn't want to be in God's presence, then he will arrange an alternate place for him to go. So thus we have the formula. There it is on the board. Born once, die twice. If you're only physically born and not spiritually born, then you die physically, but you also die spiritually. Born once, die twice. But if you're born twice, you die once, right? If you're born physically and born again, then you only have to endure the physical death. But then after that, it's life eternal. So there's two births, two deaths. And Jesus also says in this passage... There's two resurrections. In John 5, as we're going to read here in a moment, you're going to see that Jesus says the difference between these two resurrections is His voice. Who hears His voice? Who knows Him as Savior and Master and the Good Shepherd? And He will call those bodies out of the ground one day to be united with their soul. First off, He talks about the resurrection of the saints. Notice this verse 24. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, watch this, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear. And the voice of the Son of God and those who will hear will, what church? Live. That's the resurrection of the saints. This is what the Bible would call the first resurrection. The resurrection that you and I want to be counted in. Now, how does this work? Well, Jesus claims to be the first fruits of that resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Jesus paved the way for all to be saved and all to be raised. Just as Christ was raised, you and I one day, according to the Bible, will be raised in like manner. Then there's also another part of this first resurrection called the rapture. 
The rapture speaks of a time when the dead in Christ will rise. That's yet to happen. And those saints who are dead in Christ, their soul, which is in heaven, will be reunited with a body, a resurrection body. And those who are on the earth at the time the rapture happens, they'll be instantly translated, taken up into the glory, and given a resurrection body. Hallelujah. I pray that God does it in my lifetime, don't you? I want to go up, up, and away. Have a one-way ticket to be with Christ forever. And then, listen to what Paul explains this rapture event in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says this, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will ever be with the Lord. Somebody in the house of God, say amen. Are you excited today about a sinless, deathless, painless, ageless, limitless body? Hey, this world is growing strangely dim. I'm looking for Him to arrive on the horizon at any moment now. The signs of the times are aligning. I know enough of my Bible to see that what God said would be the setup before the end is happening right now in our time. And friend, if I didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd run in baseball slide this morning to the altar, repent of your sin, trust in Him, be born again, and have the promise of being able to sing one day, you ain't seen the last of me. The grave has no hold on the child of God one day. There's other saints that are a part of this first resurrection. There are the martyrs whom the Bible say will die during the tribulation period. And then there's all the Old Testament saints. David and Noah and Moses and Abraham and all the great lives of the Old Testament. They too are a part of this first resurrection that Jesus spoke of here. And the Bible teaches that at the end of the tribulation period, right before Jesus establishes His 1,000 year kingdom on the earth, that those two groups will be raised to live in the millennium. So the best way to understand these resurrections is to think of it in terms of a Jewish harvest. Christ is the first fruits. The first out of the grave, who is the prototype, who's the model, who's the means for our resurrection. And then there's a main harvest, that's the rapture, when the church is called up to be with Christ. And then finally there's gleanings, those leftovers that were left on the outside of the fields as they harvested their grain in the Old Testament. The the gleanings, that would be the tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints, they will be raised too. A few years ago, I had a brother call me. And he said, Brother Derek, he said, I've, I've stepped into the home of a fellow. He was actually working, doing a delivery. He said, Brother Derek, I've stepped into the home of a fellow who's on his deathbed. He doesn't have much time to live. He said, I'm wondering what you're doing right now. If you're close by, he said, can you drop what you're doing? Gave me the address. He said, come down here. You need to talk to this fella. He said, I think he really needs the Lord. I got there into the home, went to the back bedroom. This man was on his deathbed. You could see the Grim Reaper just had one icy hand on him. I mean, he was pale as a sheet. You could see that he was having trouble breathing. 
And I got down to the bedside of this man and his, his voice was very faint. I introduced myself. I said, sir, I don't know you and you don't know me. I said, but I believe that God sent me here today for a reason. I said, I'm the, I'm the pastor at Liberty Baptist Church and I've here, come here today to tell you that Jesus loves you and that you can have the hope of heaven. He looked at me with glassy eyes. He had tears streaming down his face. You know what he said? He said, preacher, he said, I'm afraid to die. You see, when you come down the last moments of life, all the things that you thought was important get swept away. And you want to know one thing. Am I prepared to go to the other side? This guy, everything that he lived for, everything that he had built in his life, it all crumbled at this moment where he's asking me, how can I be saved? Oh, glory to God. I'm able to report to you today that I was able to open my Bible and I took a stroll down the Romans road. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death. But, but, but the gift of God is eternal life. Then we took a turn and we went to Romans 5.8 But God demonstrated His love and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Then I took into Romans 10, 9 and 10 that all who will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He said, preacher, do I have to be at a church to get saved? I said, brother, we can seal it right here at the bedside. And that old man with the little faint voice that he had left, he cried out to Jesus in his own way. He said, God, forgive me. For I'm a sinner. Oh, God, save me today. And friend, I'm telling you, there was church in the middle of that man's bedroom. And I do believe that he got gloriously saved. He couldn't run around and shout. He couldn't raise his voice. But I think that he got born again right there on his deathbed. May have been his first and his last opportunity. And as I left that day, you know what he said? He said, preacher, he said, this is the greatest day of my life. Three days later, he was dead. Dead on this earth, but more alive than he'd ever been. And I'm looking forward one day to being able to stroll through the gates of glory and shake that brother's hand and say, I told you Jesus was right. You see, friend, listen to me. For the saint of God, this old world is the closest to hell you'll ever get. Aren't you glad for that? But for the sinner today who's undone and without Christ, listen to me. This is the closest to heaven you'll ever, ever get. But you can, with one prayer, with one transfer of faith, change your eternal trajectory and your zip code to heaven and to Jesus Christ. You see, hell is so unnecessary. Nobody has to go there, do they? I think about what the story that Adrian Rogers told. Adrian Rogers told a story that one evening he was out on the streets. He was sharing Jesus. He was there with another man and they were sharing Christ. And In the city where they were sharing the Lord, not too far down the road, there was a bar. And get this, the name of the bar was the Gates of Hell. <laughs> Who would name a bar that? He said that as they were out sharing Christ, one person drove up and said, Hey, you guys know where the bar, the gates of hell are at? And Adrian Rogers said that the 
friend, the person that he was with, knew the city better than he did. And he said, yeah, I know where the, that bar is, the gates of hell. The guy said, well, how do I get there? Can you give me directions? He said this. He said, yeah. In a roundabout way, he was also witnessing to him. He said, you want to get to the gates of hell? Go down this street right here, take a right. You're going to drive by a church. It's called Calvary. It's got a big cross in the middle of it. He said, drive by Calvary, go past the cross, and you'll run right into the gates of hell. What a story we need to remember today. Hey, friends, hell is so unnecessary. Just ignore the preacher. Step aside the church. Drive past the cross and the mercy of God and all the testimony of God's men. You don't have to go. You can change that decision today. Well, we see not only the resurrection of the saints, but the resurrection of the sinners. Look at what verse 28 and 29 says. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Watch this. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The second resurrection that Jesus talks about here is slated to take place after Jesus' millennial reign here on the earth, which means a thousand and seven years after the rapture. What is this second resurrection about? Well, it, it happens at a place the Bible calls in Revelation 20 the great white throne judgment. I've heard some Christians well-meaning, they say, well, I know one day I'm going to have to stand before the great white throne. No, that's wrong. If you're a Christ believer, you're not going to the great white throne. That's for sinners and the wicked dead. You'll be judged at the Bema seat for your works done while you are a Christian. That'll be the gain of loss or reward, not the decision of entrance into heaven. But the great white throne judgment, that's where the wicked dead are judged. They're given a resurrection body and then they will be cast into a place called the lake of fire. Listen to what John described in Revelation 20, verse 12. Then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then I saw another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. What are we judged by? Or what are they judged by? They're judged by their words. They're judged by their works. They're judged by their conscience. The Bible speaks of several books that God is keeping a record of. At the great white throne, John saw all those who had died without Christ. Their bodies were summoned from the grave and from the seas and their souls were united with a body and there they stood before Judge Jesus naked. And John says that this group will be made up, watch of the phrase, the small and the great. That is an expression that means everybody from every walk of life and rank of life. Have no doubt, in that line, there'll be Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus and Baptists and Methodists and Catholics and all kinds of quote-unquote good moral people who thought they could just check a box off and be a good person and attend church and do this and do that and be 51% good and 49% bad in some way God would just wink at their sin. Friend, it don't work that way. There will be those who believed in many gods and those who believed in no God in that line. 
There'll be princes as well as paupers. There'll be janitors and there'll be surgeons. There'll be a pious monk. There'll be death row murderers all in that line. There'll be a banker right beside a beggar. There'll be a statesman right beside a scientist. There'll be a housewife and an honor student. There'll be a drugged out junkie and a distinguished celebrity. And God says they're going to stand before Him in judgment. Oh my. There's no way that a serious preacher of the gospel can read a passage like that and not have a soul searching in his own quiet time with the Lord. Because the situation is so grave. There's two verdicts. Two words that we can hear from Jesus Christ. He'll turn to those who know Him and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Or he will turn to those whom he does not know and he'll say, Depart from me, ye worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. One of my seminary professors told this story. He was in the service and I have a feeling that he witnessed this personally or maybe the story was really about him. But here's the way he presents it in one of his books. There was a couple of soldiers in the army who were about to be deployed to a hot battlefield. The reality of war started to settle in on these boys and they realized they could very well be going to their deaths. Isn't it interesting how your life perspective changes when the bullets start flying and the bombs start exploding? He said the night before, me and my bunkmates stayed up reading the Bible and we came across some passages about Jesus teaching on hell. We were so troubled that we decided to pay the chaplain a visit. So we read to him the verses that they discovered about hell and we asked him, we wanted to hear from you about this chaplain. Does hell really exist? Here's how he replied. Uh, he hemmed and hawed around, tried to soften the blow. Well, today scholars know that hell isn't exactly what people thought it was centuries ago. After all, today God is a God of love and how could a loving God send anybody to an eternity with hell? One of the soldiers asked, So are you saying, sir, that you don't believe in hell? No, I don't, said the chaplain. That's when the soldiers looked at each other, got up and walked out of his tent. Does that mean I'll see you both at service later on, gentlemen? I doubt it, one of the soldiers said. Why not? The chaplain said, surprised. The other soldier spoke up. He said, think about it, sir. You say one thing. The Bible says another. If there is no hell, we don't need you. And if there is a hell, we don't want to be misled by you. I stand today before you, friend. Not as your enemy, but as somebody who loves your soul enough to tell you that according to this Bible, there is a hell. But according also to this Bible, there was a cross. And there's an empty tomb. And there's a loving Savior. And He can save you from your sin and your iniquity, your evil today. Don't play Russian roulette with your soul. Eternity is a long time to be wrong. And friend, think about this. If there was no hell, then the cross was the greatest blunder of all time. Why did Jesus come? To save us. 
He took our place. He suffered the punishment of hell so that we could be given heaven. I was telling about the praise team earlier today. You, this is how God works. Eight o'clock this morning, I got a call from my parents. Hey, Derek, just want you to know she passed. And today, my grandmother is in one of two places. You know what's most sobering about the whole thing? I don't know where she's at. I never one time heard my grandmother pray. Never one time did I see an open Bible at my grandmother's house. Never one time did I hear her give a testimony to us grandchildren. Hey children, I want you to know this was what led to my decision to trust in Jesus Christ. I love my grandmother. She's a great woman. I have a head full of sweet memories of life with her. But you know what the great disservice that she left me with today is? I don't know where she went to heaven or hell. Friend, don't leave your family in that kind of position. Let your calling and election be made known. I don't want my family, my loved ones, my friends to doubt where I am when my eyes close in death. I want them to know I was all about Jesus. And Jesus is my Lord, my God, my Savior, my Redeemer, my resurrection and my life, my hope. Friend, can you say that today? I pray that one day I will get to meet my grandmother in heaven. But right now, we won't know until eternity begins. Friend, where are you? Where are you in that? If you are unsure... Or if you know that you are hellbound like Alice Cooper was, you can come today and make that decision that would change everything.